1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1 says, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that, they, that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. So, moreover, beginning there in verse 1, again, ties this section back to the last section. Paul has been talking all the same thing here, um, hitting at different angles. But it started in the beginning of 8, talking about how they were using their knowledge in a way that was not loving or edifying. And he begins to lay out that kind of case and then shows through nine himself as an example of that type of loving and edifying action through knowledge in a way that truly is spiritually mature and how he did that for them and how he continues to do that. And it's a part of his ministry, seeking to be a servant of all. And then he exhorted them that they should realize to be that type of servant is going to take some self-discipline, some self-denial, like a runner running a race or like a boxer in a fight. They understand that there is a requirement to be tempered in all things so that they wouldn't be disqualified as servants of Christ. And so when he goes to moreover, he's exhorting this church to continue to recognize that, and he's going to point out through this section that the Israelites in the wilderness were an example of those who lacked this type of self-discipline and therefore became displeasing and disqualified as servants of the Lord. So you'll notice through one through five there, the word all is used numerous times there. All our fathers run under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized, all ate the same spiritual food. And those alls tie us back to verse 24 and 25 in the last chapter. Do you not know that those who run the race all run? And again, they're temperate in all things. So all the Israelites we're going to see here had certain spiritual privileges. And all the Corinthians are runners in this race that requires self-control in all things. So... Paul's thought process is still moving here. These things are still connected. There's not just a break moving to something else. And he begins this list of spiritual privileges that the ancient Israelites had. He wants to lay out, look at this group of people and all the rights or liberties or advantages that they had in God. And again, I'll read through here. Uh, I do think it's important. Um, there's allusions to baptism, to communion, to things that this more New Testament church would understand or have. Uh, some commentators, when they go through here, they try to make exact types of, of these things. What does it mean to be baptized in the cloud and in the sea? How does that tie to our, our immediate life? I don't think Paul's doing that. He's not trying to make an allegory or an exact type of most of these things. He's just showing a comparison. Here's the Israelites and all these spiritual privileges they had. 
that are very similar to where we are and all these spiritual privileges we now have and the Corinthians now had as believers in Jesus Christ and then showing where that takes them. So, again, uh, he wants these Corinthians to hear that exhortation to not be disqualified or cast away that he left off with at the end of the last chapter. So, again, let's read down with, with a little bit of context there. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. that They should have been aware of these things, familiar with them. That all our fathers, the fathers being those that walked in the faith before them, they're connected, we are connected with the Old Testament saints. There's things passed down through us. They were expressions of faith, even though it looked a little different. All our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. This kind of first privilege they had here, all under the cloud, all passed through the sea. The cloud referring to that pillar of fire and cloud and the sea referring to the Red Sea. They would have been familiar with these things. The idea there is they all experienced a salvation. The cloud is what led them out of Egypt. Guidance, protection, when certainly Egypt and its, the armies of Pharaoh came and cornered them against the Red Sea. That cloud and pillar of fire came in between them and those armies. Then the Lord opened the sea. The people walked through and it was in the sea then that Pharaoh and his army were destroyed so that they never had to worry about being chased down by this army again. The power of what had enslaved them was broken at that moment. So what he's saying is they, they all received that same thing there. They had salvation from their slavery. They had guidance. They had protection from God. They were all into baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They had a unique connection there. God and Moses, there was a unique ministry with Moses. God even saying, I talk to him face to face like a person talks to a friend. He's not just a prophet. And the people of Israel had come at one point and just said, look, we don't ever want to hear God talk to us again. You talk to him. <laughs> he could come back and tell us what you said, and we'll take it as the mouth of God. So Moses becomes a unique type of prophet in the sense that his words were God's words. They were taking it in that way, uh, in a very unique way. And what it's saying here is being baptized in both God and, the, and Moses was placing their allegiance with God through Moses, kind of like the baptism of John. If you went during Jesus' day and you were baptized by John the Baptist, you were aligning yourself with John and his message and his truth as opposed to what was there in the normal Jewish circles. And then John would tell people, no, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. You go follow him. And people would follow him, and they were baptized by Christ and his disciples. And it was a sign of, I'm giving my allegiance to him, to his word, to this message. They were, in a sense, becoming a true people and community and nation with purpose in that moment following Moses through that Red Sea, totally freed from slavery. They are unique now, set apart to God. That's the picture. They had this separation in a unique way. Verse 3, it says, They all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. Spiritual in the sense it wasn't 
that there wasn't literally something there. It had a spiritual source. These things were not things that they just gathered up on their own. They were given to them in miraculous ways through divine appointment. Psalm 78, 23 through 25 says, Yet he had opened the door, he being God, had opened the doors of heaven, had rained down manna on them to eat, and given them the bread of heaven. Men ate angels' food, and he sent them food to the full. And Nehemiah 9.15 will say, You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought them water out of the rock for their thirst. There was literal divine provision for them. And he says they all drank in the same thing. There wasn't a select group of Israelites that didn't get to have any manna. Like you woke up and you were like, Oh, I was a bad kid. I got no manna around my tent. And coal in my stocking instead. That's not how it happened. He says they all ate it. They all drank the same water. Nobody had the special juice and nobody else didn't have any juice. This is not what was happening. They all had these privileges. Verse 4, they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Now, here Paul literally ties the provision to Christ, and the rock, he says, is a type of Christ. God is literally working and making these provisions possible for them. It is Jesus Christ who's doing this. He was the same source, in essence, just like these believers would have it. That rock, it says, followed them. Uh, you know, there's some debate whether the rock actually rolled with them through their journeys. The Jewish traditions is actually that. Uh, or did water from the rock flow after them like a river? If I had to guess, I'd probably say that. Psalm 105.41 says, He opened the rock, and water gushed out, and it ran in dry places like a river. But even if the river just follows them around through the desert, that's a pretty big miracle, too. So, either way, there's this literal, miraculous provision given to them on a regular basis from Jesus Christ. And Paul is saying, listen, I want you guys to see this. You should know this. All these people had incredible spiritual privilege. They, they all received the same things. But, verse 5, here's his point. With most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. He's saying, listen, this is important. And it's important for us. It was important for these Corinthians the Corinthians had been given incredible spiritual privileges. Paul the Apostle stayed with them longer than he stayed almost anywhere, except for Ephesus. He was there for a long time, personally teaching them and living out that example and lifestyle in front of them. Not only that, God was doing remarkable things in their lives. They had spiritual gifts. They did have a lot of knowledge. And these Israelites, it's hard to read some of these Old Testament stories and not in some ways wish, man, I wish I had some of those privileges. Kind of want to get up in the morning and just have a pillar lead me around as to where I'm supposed to go that day. Be nice to have food. Rain. There's, there's parts that it's hard to read and say, man, I wish I would have had that. But God is saying, no, no, you have incredible spiritual privileges too. And we have incredible spiritual privileges in what Christ has given us, in his spirit, in his word, in the freedom that we have to come and worship as we do, in the community that we get. 
And what, what Paul is saying is, despite all this, despite all these incredible privileges, with most of them, God was not well pleased. It becomes something that we need to take heed of because our spiritual privileges do not guarantee us that we're going to stand or that there's going to be no problems. Despite all this provision from the Lord, they've been slaves in Egypt. They were set free. Again, Egypt's power was broken. They were brought to the very presence of God. And what do we know? Real quick, idolatry sets in, unbelief sets in, complaining sets in. So fast those privileges are given up. Most of them, God was not well pleased. Joshua, Caleb, Moses for most of the time, the younger generation, but a large percentage of people who were given incredible spiritual privileges, their lives worked out differently. Just because they all had the same privileges didn't mean they all had the same ending. And Paul wants these Corinthians to realize, okay, we hear what you're saying, Paul. God, you know, is not moved by majorities. When the whole clan gets there, right, to the promised land in Kadesh Barnea, and they refuse to enter in, God doesn't say, well, you know, because all but two of you failed the test, I'll give you a retest. That's not, that's not how he does things. He's true to his character and his word. And just because most of a crowd doesn't agree with him doesn't mean he's changing. He's eternal. And he's perfect. We get... We get pressured by majorities. The, more, the bigger a crowd is that says something, it seems like it has to be true. God's not sitting around feeling pressured. And this warning that he wants them to see is, hey, even if most of you here in Corinth believe something, most of you have a lot of privilege. Most of you might agree on something. You better make sure that you're where the Lord would have you to be. Because if I, I look around and there's a whole bunch of people with me, but God's not on my side, it doesn't matter. God is the majority in every scenario. And I need to make sure that I'm doing what agrees with him. What happens, he says in verse 5, their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. That word scattered means spread out. They were strewn across their journeys. Very sadly, you could trace those 40 years. I don't know how they buried people, but there was a lot of graves in places. And Paul says, you need to think about that. And where was it? In the wilderness. The wilderness was halfway between Egypt and the Promised Land. We know that. Again, very much like our position, the earth is our current wilderness, we're not where we used to be. We're not where we're going. We are strangers and pilgrims. We are headed home. We're not there yet. The Lord still has something for us. And their journey becomes a warning to those who think their spiritual privileges grant them a successful finish, per se, or a winning race. 
Again, just because we classify ourselves as God, God's people, there are a lot of people who think just because they go to church or they get baptized or they take communion, like they're good. Paul's saying, actually, you need to check yourself and you need to see what God thinks about things. And you need to understand what his character is. Let me, let me tell you some examples that you should remember, especially those of us who are religious people who grow up in good biblical circles, who have a lot of spiritual privilege. This is for us. We need to think about these things. He says in verse 6, These things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. He lay, he's laid out the general warning, and he wants to make it clear now we should take wisdom and understanding from their specific example. These things became our examples. We should be able to read these things and say, okay, these things are examples for me. The things in the Old Testament, the things that happen with God and his people, there's so much there that you can trace out. Things between men and women, children, elderly, cities, nations, how God interacted, obedience, rebellion, truth, lies, sacrifice, courage. We could go through the whole thing. You can see so much of God and who he is. He says these things have become our examples we should take something from these. And what are we to understand most directly, Paul says, that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. One of the main things we should take away from this wilderness journeying of these privileged people is that we shouldn't lust after evil things as they also did. Psalm 106, 14 and 15 says, "...they lusted exceedingly in the wilderness." And tested God in the desert. And he gave them their requests, but sent leanness into their soul. Lusting after evil things, not just sexual, is being controlled by desires that are outside of God's will. And God's provision for us. If, if we don't have it and the Lord doesn't want to give it to us, we should not be lusting after those things. Sometimes to teach us what is truly good for us. God will even give us what we desire, which is not how you want the scenario to end. You want to realize, okay, yeah, Lord, this is, this is too much. You know, even as a parent, kids like, I can carry that. Sometimes you're like, you can? Okay, here you go. And they can't, and you know that, you're like, okay, yeah, thanks, now you know. There's, there's times where God says, you want that? You think you really want that? You don't want that. And you complain and complain. And he's like, okay, I have it. And we're like, I don't want that. That's what happened. They lusted exceedingly. And you just think of all the evil desire that's stirred up in our world. Evil desire for things God has not given us, he does not want to give us, and he never will give us particularly in our culture. The whole point of media and social media is to stir up evil desire. It's very small segments that stir up desire for good and righteous and true things. 
It's out there, but it's not out there very much. It's to stir up things of the flesh. And the more we give ourselves to it, sometimes we're surprised we give ourselves six days a week to things that stir up our flesh. And then we're like, but I've been going to church regular. And we wonder why we're still struggling in grace. Because we're supposed to learn from the example that we shouldn't lust after evil things as they lusted. It got them into trouble. Now, what Paul's going to do is he's given, again, a general warning. Hey, these people had incredible privileges. God was not pleased with them all. Their privileges didn't guarantee their success. And they lusted after evil things. And now he's going to show through specific example how that worked out in their lives. So beginning in verse 7, he's going to list a bunch of things. Do not become idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Paul warns against the evil desire toward idolatry. He quotes from Exodus 32 here. This is the story most of us know about the golden calf. Moses goes up to get the commandments. Joshua is with him. Joshua says, I think there's a war going on down there. Moses says, it's not a war. Something worse. (laughs) And they've built this golden calf. One of the all-time classic human excuses in all the world, Moses comes down, what is going on? Aaron just says, oh, you know, the people just gave me all these gold earrings. I was just like, and then, oh, snap. You know, that's what literally, you, you couldn't make these. That's how you know the Bible is divine. You couldn't, somebody writing the story would not make this up. That was the Philadelphia version. The real version is, you know, I just received all these earrings. I threw them into the fire and this calf just popped out. Like this just randomly happens. This never happened to you, Moses, ever. So, of course, this is just ridiculous. They, they know what they're doing. The verses actually tell us, and I'll say, it's also, it's also interesting, the part that Paul quotes, Exodus 32, 5 and 6 says this. So when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow is a feast to the Lord Jehovah. They're calling this calf Jehovah. They're worshiping Jehovah through this golden calf. God is not a golden calf. Then they rose early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. You think that would be the, the offering of sacrifices and offerings would be the more direct quote to idolatry. But what Paul says is after that, the scripture says, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play, which is what Paul quotes. I think he's tying this to the Corinthian experience, which he's still addressing here, and he's getting to at the end of chapter 10, which is they are still going into these idolatrous temples, and what they're doing is sitting there and eating and drinking and playing. The playing had the idea of both religious dancing and also sexual interaction. That was the environment of what was happening there. And Paul says, hey, their evil desire led them to build an idol. And he doesn't go right to the side. He says, and they ate before it, they drank before it, and they played in front of it. What, what drove them? Was it a, if you just sat down and you said, hey, Aaron, was it a godly desire that led you here? It's pretty self-explanatory. 
And though, again, you and I may not literally throw something into our oven and a golden calf pop out, you and I can still have plenty of situations where if the question was posed, is it a godly desire that led you here right now to watch this, to do this, to be involved in this? If the answer is no, it's the idolatry of something else that is driving us. And we can very easily both cause something to be a God or form a God that will allow us to eat and drink and play the way we want to. And we'll call it Jesus, like Aaron called the calf Jehovah. Except God is not who we might like him to be. He is who he is and who he said he would be. We can't allow ourselves. We should take from the example of those who, because of their desire to eat and drink and play, created a God that would allow them to do that. And if you want a Jesus or a God that allows you to eat, drink, and play and live life the way you want, you can find him. He is out there. There's golden calves forged in a whole bunch of churches, and they call it Jesus. But it's not the God of the Bible, and it's not who Jesus claims to be. And it's important that we recognize our own penchant to lean towards those things at times. Verse 8, he brings up another situation. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fell. Paul warns against sexual immorality. This is a reference to the sin of the people with the Moabite women that were sent into the camp at the instruction of Balaam to Balak. Balaam was this unique kind of spiritual character. Balak was the king of the Moabites. He wanted to get rid of the Israelites. He knew he couldn't do that by force, so he wanted a divine intervention. So he hires this guy, Balaam, to do it. Most of you guys know the story. The donkey's talking to him. If you don't know the story, you should read it. Numbers 25. It's pretty great. But Balaam instead is just blessing the people. And then it comes to the point where Balak's like, what are you doing? I hired you to curse them. You just keep blessing them. And Balaam says, I can't, I can't curse them if God won't curse them. I got an idea, though. The Bible tells us in Numbers 31, 15, and 16, Moses said to them, have you kept all the women alive? Look, these women caused the children of Israel through the counsel of Balaam to trespass against the Lord in the incident of Peor. And there was a plague among the congregation of the Lord. Balaam said, I can't curse them, but you can get the people to take themselves out of God's will and be judged by him. So here's what you do. You have your celebrations with your gods, and you have all your pretty Moabite women invite them to come be a part of it. Why don't you come hang out with us, eat, drink, and play? That is happening all over our world. This is something I think most people are familiar with. That desire is constantly out there. The sexual sin takes a religious tone with it. Psalm 106, 28, it tells us, they joined themselves also to Baal of Peor and ate sacrifices made to the dead. They gave themselves to this worship. Baal was a part of it. But the worship was sexualized. 
in having sex with some of the temple prostitutes or these other individuals, what was birthed from that would be considered fruit. So you would have, if you had a birth, then it would be a sign that you would have a fruitful field or a fruitful harvest or a fruitful family or a fruitful life. And then many of the times they would even take those babies and then sacrifice them back to the gods. And that was considered worship. And of course, it was enticing for some of these Israelites. And many of them decided to participate so that we're told that 23,000 in one day are judged. The the account in Numbers tells us 24,000. Here it says in one day. Apparently the others died before or after. And it's, again, another picture of an evil desire that allows us to create a God that will let us live out our sexual desires the way we want. And again, there's plenty of that God out there. If you want a God that allows you to live out and is okay with you living sexually however you want, you can find that God. He's in plenty of churches. But the problem is, Things do not change their nature before God according to our thoughts about them. Only God's thoughts on something matter. And the Bible says his thoughts are not our thoughts. But he has given us his thoughts clearly. And all of our lives must come into conformity to his thoughts. And it's another form of idolatry and evil desire that Satan knows is very successful, and he's been playing it since the beginning of time. And it's the way many people can be drawn. This is probably the thing we think of the most, but I I also will say it's interesting that not all of these illustrations are related to sexual immorality. There are other things here. So verse 9 says, some of these we may not think of as direct, nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted, and they were destroyed by serpents. Here Paul warns against tempting or testing God. The reference here is the Numbers 21, 4 through 9, that of the bronze serpent, and these people were testing God by their complaints. They were in the wilderness, and they were always kind of complaining, which is going to be the next section. But at one point they say this in Numbers 21, The people spoke against God and Moses, and they said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and our soul loathes this worthless bread. There's a lot of things wrong with that. Number one, He would have had them in the promised land a lot earlier. They were the ones who lived in unbelief. That's why they were still marching around. Number two, no food and our soul loathes this worthless bread. Those two things are conflicting. Obviously, there's food. You just don't like it. They can't take it anymore, even though they're eating angel's food. There's no water. We know there was water. They'd been delivered from Egypt. They were slaves. Their children were being, their male children were being taken and thrown into the river and killed. And literally here they are just complaining against God and Moses. And there are miracles all around them. Every single day they can walk out and look at the pillar of cloud and fire. Every single day manna is falling. 
Every single day, water is provided. Every single day, their clothes are not waxing old. Every single day, their sandals are still together. Every single day, you could go down the list. There's literal miracles in their lives. And the point is, at this point, they are testing God. Their complaints are putting God's character of holiness and grace against one another. <laughs> and it's kind of like we would say this too. To test God is to try to manipulate him or push him to act out of character. We would say the same thing when others are testing our patience. Don't try me. Right? I'm a patient person, but don't, right? don't press me. Don't push me. There's, there's a point where God, to be true and just, also acts holy. And the Bible says they tested him. And there's ways, because of evil desire, that we too can try to put God on the spot or force him to act in a particular way. God, if you don't, or he better, or I might just, God, if this doesn't work, you can't test God. You can't put him on the spot. Like, he doesn't need any of us. It's an incredible blessing to live with God and to serve him, to live a life in service to God. There is no better life. But like, he doesn't need us. <laughs> if I walk out in front of a bus and say, God, you need me, just stop this bus, I'm going to die. <laughs> uh, he's going to be like, I told you not to test me. Well, it's not my fault. It's not, we can't push him. We are not in the place to manipulate God with our actions. And because of evil desire, there are many people that get in the position, well, God, if you don't answer this thing or you don't answer this way, right, they're just going to give up on God or walk out on God. That's testing God. You're, you're trying to manipulate him, to put him on the spot. He is God. You're not. He knows what's best. We don't. We don't see the whole picture. And how many times, like these Israelites, who, who might think they have some just thing to complain about, when, as I said, they're just ignoring miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle. Matthew Henry said something along the lines of, we often allow, like, one affliction to outweigh a thousand mercies. And that's what's happening here. And these people now begin to test him. And Paul's warning these Corinthians, it didn't work out well for those who tested him. He sent fiery serpents into the camp, and many of them died. And that's where they made that golden, or excuse me, the bronze serpent, and they held it up, and you had to look at it to be healed. Can't test God. We need to trust him. We need to recognize his work in our lives. Now, 10, Paul says, Nor complain as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Here, Paul warns against complaining against God. This is likely a reference to number 16, 
The reality is most commentators don't know 100% because they complain a whole lot. <laughs> There's a lot of stories you can pick from, but I think it's number 16. He's been referencing numbers a lot. The people complain first about Moses' leadership with this guy, Korah. And they're like, how come you're the leader? Other people can lead. And then Moses does this kind of thing. And he's like, okay, well, we'll draw a line in the sand. If you think that I'm just doing it myself and God isn't with me, then go stand with Korah. And if he is, then let something new happen, like the ground open up and swallow you. And people went and stood with Korah, and the ground opened up and swallowed them and closed back up. Now, you would think that after that happened and you saw that, people would be like, okay, right? Like, all right, we're not going to really complain about that anymore. Number 1641 says, the next day. People complained because they didn't like how God dealt with the situation. They didn't like what he did. So then, if you can believe it, God sent a plague and 14,700 people died before Aaron stopped the plague. It says the, the destroyer came. That word, the unique word, is only used right there in the scriptures. Uh, complaining in the end is just utter foolishness. We all do it. We need to repent. It's foolish because God is loving and good and wise and powerful. They should have known that. And he is that to us because he has to be. The, the difference is that God has different aims. He has no evil desires, and we have plenty of them. So our evil desires lead us to complaining when the reality is if we had all the love, power, and goodness, and wisdom of God, we would order life exactly the same way, even for ourselves. Because he only does what's best for us. And in the end, we're literally complaining about things that have been ordered to protect our eternal salvation. Like, who would any of us be without his oversight and intervention? You could have chose, you could say, like, man, I wish I was in a different family. You could be some really rich, successful family. And you could have just been a heathen, rich person that never cared about God and gone to hell. None, none of us know, we think that another scenario would be better for us, but we actually have no idea what we would be like in that other scenario. Or we look around and we think some other person has it way better. But the reality is we have no idea what's happening in their lives. And when we complain against God, we're complaining really about ourselves. Complain to God? Sure. That's what Moses did. Like, God, I can't take these people. <laughs> I don't want to hang with it. That's, that's fine. Go to God. Bring your complaints to him. Bring your prayer to him. Let your moderation be known to men and bring all things in prayer to God. We do the opposite. We freak out with people and then take nothing to God. People should know us moderately. God should get all your heat. He could take it. He already knows anyway. It's not a shock to him. Complaining to God and complaining about God are two very different things. And when we complain about things in life, we often are complaining about God and his work. Paul would say to the Philippians, do all things without complaining and disputing or grumbling and complaining, the King James would say. 
That's a wonderful verse. I, we have our children learn memory verses, not just my personal children, I just think in general. And they're wonderful, but many of them aren't very applicable. I have found this to be an extremely applicable verse in my home. Do all things without complaining and disputing. Philippians 2, 4. You should underline that in your Bible. Teach it to all your children. They'll say it back to you. But it is a wonderful verse for the whole family to learn. Great memory verse that applies way more than a lot of other ones sometimes we memorize. What Paul says is, it was their evil desires that led to complaining. You're around a person who complains a lot, they have a lot of evil desires. They're not actually content in heart. And Paul says, you don't want to push God. It was a sin. Do you see the example? You should learn from that example. Verse 11, all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition upon whom the end of the ages had come. God ordained these examples for a very good reason. He put all these things in his word on purpose. There are plenty of things. Did you ever think about this? The whole story isn't written. They wandered around for 40 years. There are plenty of stories we don't know. There are plenty of stories we don't know about what happened with Jesus and the disciples. John the Apostle said, if I wrote everything, it would fill up all the books of the world. The things that God did copy down, he copied down on purpose. That word example, 6 and 11 there, the Greek gives us the idea of an uh, imprint made from an impression. Like You hit something and it leaves an impression or the prototype of something, the first model of something. It's not just that these are examples. They are the best examples for us. And as you read through the Old Testament, we should read the things that are there and the New Testament and say, these things are for us. Notice, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. God marked these things down because they're actually the perfect things for us to learn from. When I find myself in these situations with, with temptations to idolatry or sexual sin or complaining or testing God. My mind should go and marshal up a bunch of biblical examples and greed and say, you know what? I remember that guy Gehazi who was a servant of Elisha and it didn't work out so well for him. I should not do that. And I should be wise. A person of understanding is somebody who can look at somebody else's scenario and learn from it. I am not going to go that direction. How sad we see many people in scenarios looking at something that's a train wreck and then going the same direction. You and I should be able to look at these examples in Scripture and say, these are written for me for me to learn from, so that I don't make the same mistakes. Therefore, now Paul's summing it up, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Paul wants to say to these Corinthians, if you think you're never going to be like these people, look out. They had incredible privilege. You have incredible privilege. But with most of them, he was not well pleased. All the things Paul mentions, the same are happening there in Corinth. They got problems with idolatry. They got problems with sexual immorality. They, he knows these same issues are there. He knows evil desires are in every human heart. 
And there's a realization we need to have that no amount of progress or perceived spiritual strength can justify a lack of caution in the Christian life. I should recognize I can mess up. Now, all of us can remember moments of failure and temptation that, you know, if we have the instant replay, you know, they have the commercial where they throw the red flag and they like play it back. Like, who left the fridge open? I didn't throw the red flag, right? And the guy's like, all right, you know, I did. If we, if we threw the red flag and we all, showed, if we all had replays of our failure and temptation, we'd all blush and feel like idiots. Everybody's had those moments. And some of it is good. It keeps us spiritually humble, right? You don't just sit around admiring your holy graces in a moment of temptation because you realize you're a human. And anyone who thinks they stand, the idea here is I can't trust in my own strength. I can't trust in my own willpower. I have to trust in God. I can't just take, take it for granted. Because temptation hits us on all different levels. It's not, we, we just think kind of big things, but Satan doesn't care. Like insecurity or murder, it's no different to him if he can destroy your life with one or the other. And the temptation to be funny or self-justify or defend, to get back, to have just a little sin, to live a bit more comfortably, to cover the truth, to protect our reputation, to think our tongue, what we say, isn't as important as what we do. There's plenty of ways that Satan can tempt our hearts and lives. If we think like, nah, that thing can never get me. If we think we stand, we have to be careful. Even in our strengths, we could fail. Moses, the Bible tells us, was the meekest man that ever lived, and he lost his temper. David, we know, was a man whose heart was literally after God, a man after God's own heart. And we see him in adultery and in murder. His integrity, totally covered, fake, a hypocrite. Peter, his strength is his boldness, and we see him collapsing in front of a girl that's a servant, denying Christ, saying he never even knew him. These guys who are so strong, failing in the direct places of their strength because they thought they never would. Peter said, not me, Lord, I'll die with you. They needed to take heed. Satan is no fool. He's been around for thousands of years. He knows humanity better than we know ourselves. We look around and say, ah, that'll never be me. He, he also knows never to show the dire consequences of temptation until after the fact. He wants it to be like the floor dropped out from beneath you. I didn't know that this was a part of it. That's who he is. And he hits us with all different types of temptation. In Dante's Inferno, there's a picture of a sunlit hill. There's some literary debate, but the idea is this guy's traveling up this hill, which is a picture of the life he wants to lead. And these three beasts come to him in successive order. The first is a panther that he sees along his way that he's frightened of it, but he also takes note of how beautiful it is. It's remarkably beautiful, but it scares him. The second is this lion that comes roaring up to him in the moment that's just strong and frightening. 
And the last, close towards the end, is a she-wolf that's kind of drooling and just dragging along next to him, which he describes as horrible and the worst of them all. And the picture most agree is these are the ways that temptation comes into our life in youth. Most of the ways temptation come to us are beautiful at first. It's an idea of a love or a relationship or a hope or a dream. But that temptation gets twisted into something else. In the middle of life, the temptations that come to us hit us in our pride like that lion in their strength. David, king of the hill, all of a sudden taken down in a moment. And the last picture of the wolf are those things that come to us in old age, sometimes confusing, unalluring, showing up that have just kind of dragged us down for years and then they finally win in the end. Satan, he's fine. You think you stand now? There's stories of kings, great kings of Israel's history. Forty years did a good job. I'll get you a year 45. He's, he's got a way in every human life. And his aim is never good. It's only to steal, kill, and destroy, the Bible says. So Paul says, if you think you stand, you think you have maturity or some privilege or some position, take heed lest you fall. Learn from these examples. Be careful. But he doesn't end there. He also says this, that there's no temptation that's overtaking you except such as common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. And these two verses together, if you just have the one, man is scary. But if you have the other, it helps. The first is meant to get rid of our false security. The second is meant to get rid of our false despondency. Temptation may very well cause us to despair in ourselves, but here's the thing. It should never cause us to despair in God. You notice that? God is faithful, he says. God is faithful, and he wants to make two things clear. Number one, no temptation is overtaking you except as is common to man who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you were able. God is faithful by never allowing you to face invincible temptation. You have faced no superhuman temptations. All your temptations are the temptations that are common to man. Everybody faces them, which is important because Satan wants you to think that your temptations are unlike any other temptation any human being has ever faced. Yours are worse. Therefore, it's reasonable if you give in. Nobody understands yours. Nobody's been in situations like you. It's understanding if you give in to temptation. It's like totally unrealistic that you could resist. Temptation, this, this is going to be earth shattering here. Temptation is tempting, right? So I say that, right? Like if you're a lady walking in the mall and some dude with a peg leg and like no teeth hits on you, that's not temptation. That's just a dude taking a shot, right? <laughs> temptation is tempting, okay? I will never be tempted by broccoli. 
it's not tempting. It can't be tempting. You will have to tempt me with something else. And sometimes we feel like, man, if something is really tempting, then it's like, this is like this superhuman. Well, Paul is saying, actually, you're never going to face a superhuman temptation. All the temptation you face is a temptation common to man. People are facing it all over the world. And guess what? People are enduring all over the world and have endured. There have been those who have failed. We have those examples. But we also, in all those scenarios through Israel's history, we had people who didn't fail. Joshua and Caleb and Moses didn't fail. Many of the Levites didn't follow Aaron in the worship of idolatry. The younger generation was successful and entered in. Phineas went and stabbed the spear through an Israelite and a Moabite woman and was zealous with the zeal of God and was blessed for every generation. Like in every scenario, you could pick out those who overcame temptation. There were those who failed. They're an example we should see and not follow. But there's not any superhuman temptation. That should take a load off your back. You're not going to face something that you have to fail in. That won't be allowed by God because it says he won't allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. Satan just wants you to think your life is more difficult than everyone else's. The shape of our temptations might change. Our temptations are different than what the Corinthians were. But the degree isn't any different. We face the same things. And second... He says, with the temptation, he will also make a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Bear it is to endure it. The words only used a couple other times in Scripture, 2 Timothy and 1 Peter 2. The idea there is God is faithful and will always make a way for you to escape or endure, whether running or standing, so that you can prove faithful to him. You know, we have no idea what we can endure or overcome. I have no idea what temptations I can endure or overcome. So I shouldn't pick my own temptations. I have to trust God where he's placed me in life and where he's leading me. And he will never leave me in a place where I have to fail. Again, Augustine in his confession says, I myself do not know what temptations I can resist and what I cannot. So his hope was in God. God will make a way for me. Now, the question is, do we want that way? Sometimes that way is humility. Sometimes that way is confession. Sometimes people feel like, well, how come I can't ever beat that thing? Well, maybe you're not taking God's way. And you're like, well, I tried prayer. Or I tried. Yeah, but maybe God's saying go confess. Or maybe God's saying take a loss. Or maybe God's saying quit your job. Or maybe God's saying leave the relationship. God will always make a way. And if you don't want to fall into temptation, that's really important. It's wonderful to have that hope because... I think particularly if you're, if you, as most of us, I believe here do, if you want to love God and you want to please him, I think every one of us has felt the place in life where we're like, you know what, Lord, Satan could have me if he wants me. But this is just kind of a matter of time. I'm a mess. <laughs> like, I'm going to mess up somewhere down the line. Look at these. You can look at some of these examples and think these people were so godly. If David could fail, how can I succeed? And the point is, that type of thought does not actually come from our faithful God, but from the liar and the thief 
and the murderer. This, this is what Paul wants you to know. Don't be prideful and think you can't fail, but also don't think you walk through this life without God. God is faithful. You're not going to face any superhuman temptation. You can endure, and he will always make a way for you. If you want that way, it will be there. He is good to do that. He will make that way of escape. You and I are going to face temptations. We will never face them without our faithful God. I'll finish with this. Fenelon, his book, Talking with God, says this. I love the picture here. He says, we must never be astonished at temptations, however outrageous they may be. On this earth, all is temptation. Crosses tempt us by irritating our pride. Prosperity tempts us by flattering it. Our life is a continual combat, but one in which Jesus Christ fights for us. We must pass on unmoved while temptations rage around us. As the traveler overtaken by a storm simply wraps his cloak more closely about him and pushes more vigorously toward his destined home. I think that's good advice, right? Gets cold here sometimes. Pull your hood up, put your hat on, duck your head, keep walking forward. We're going to face temptations in this life, but I'll never face them without God. And I'm never going to face him in a way where I have to fail. And he's going to order and direct everything. And he will always give me a way of escape so that I can endure it. So we've been given incredible privileges. If you're here tonight and you're in the middle of temptation, this is not coincidence. The Lord is speaking to you. He is faithful. And if you're on the edge, he's also faithful to sometimes knock in our lives and be like, hey, you need to wake up. Don't mess around with this thing. If you think you stand, take heed lest you fall. No false security and no false despondency. Let's stand and let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. It is good. It is right. Through it, Lord, you reprove and correct and instruct us in righteousness so that we can be thoroughly furnished unto every good work. Men and women, complete and perfect in all your will. And I just pray, Lord, I pray particularly for those tonight, Lord Jesus, who might be in that place, Lord, where the enemy's got a finger hold in their hearts and lives. I pray, Lord, that you would open their eyes and that you would be their deliverer and show them the way out from those scenarios. And Lord Jesus, for the rest of us, I pray that you would keep us wise. We know, Lord, we're going to walk through this life, that temptation is a part of it. But we know, Lord, that doesn't shock you. And we thank you that you never leave us or forsake us. So, Lord Jesus, we just ask that you continue to be who you are, faithful in our hearts and lives, good, Lord, the everlasting arms underneath of us. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.